When I was in seminary taking classes on how to preach, almost the first thing that they told us was that every sermon should have a goal. Every sermon should have a purpose, and you should be able to state that purpose very clearly at some point uh, if, if somebody made you do it. And so I'm going to do something a little different today, and I'm going to tell you the purpose of my sermon right now. My goal in preaching the sermon that I am about to preach is to keep as many of you as possible out of prison. That's my goal. And um, that makes sense, right? That's a good goal. Because how, how can a kingdom community like First Alliance Church really be a true kingdom outpost and be good witnesses to our friends and neighbors if we're all behind bars, right? That would be a bad thing, and so that's not a very ambitious goal. But do you think we can stay out of prison? Yeah, it's not as easy and straightforward as I'm making it sound. As a matter of fact, some of you are in prison right now. Some of you are in prison right now as we speak, and I, I want to convince you of that and hopefully spring you today. Um, Matthew chapter 18. Let's start reading in verse 21, and we'll go right through to the end of the chapter this time and finish up this awesome chapter on what it means to live together as a kingdom community. 1821, then Peter came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There are some passages of the Bible that when you read them, you think, well, this is like more applicable to some people and not so applicable to others, or more applicable to this group, but not very applicable to that group. Uh, this is not one of those passages. The, this, every single Christian has to deal with this passage. Every single Christian has to deal with the issues raised in this passage because we all need to either forgive somebody or to be forgiven by somebody or both many times in our lives. It's a regular occurrence. Last week I, I mentioned to you that when I do pre-marriage counseling uh, that, that one of the most critical skills for a couple to learn is that of conflict resolution. Uh, well, it is even more essential that I talk to them about forgiveness, what it means where it comes from, 
how to do it. And, and most of us have a lot to learn in this area. And obviously marriage is just one of the areas where this, this comes into play. It happens all the time, right? We are often offended. People sin against us. We are lied to. We are sometimes lied about to other people. We have words spoken to us that, that devastate us and crush us and rob us of our, our self-confidence or, or destroy our self-image or maybe even weaken our faith. We are betrayed sometimes by people that we trust. People make promises to us and they fail to live up to them. People do things to us that are thoughtless or selfish or cruel or even abusive. And these actions hurt us or worse yet, they hurt our loved ones. And sometimes these things cannot be made up for. You can't go back and do it again the right way because the damage is done. It, it, it can't be reversed. The pain is real and you have to live with it no matter what. And it's because of what that person did to you. They have really hurt you. And Jesus says in this passage, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is a kingdom issue. These things happen to us, not just when we're out there in the cruel, unbelieving world, but within the family of Christ. Now, we don't know what Peter exactly or specifically is dealing with here when he brings up this topic. Jesus has been talking, and we talked about it last week, about what to do when a Christian brother sins against you. And so maybe there's something going on with one of the other disciples, or maybe Peter's got a grudge that he's holding and he's suddenly starting to feel kind of uneasy about because of the way that Jesus is talking. But whatever the situation is, Jesus, or Peter rather, starts this conversation with the really what he thinks of as a generous offer. He says, should I forgive someone if they sin against me up to seven times? Now you need to know that, that for most of the rabbis that were teaching at this time, the magic number was three. You would, you would forgive somebody three times, and that was, that was being generous. But Peter knows by now that Jesus is not just a regular rabbi, right? He knows if I say three, Jesus is going to say, that's wrong, because Jesus never says what the other rabbis say. So Peter's like, I'm going to be a little bit more generous. I'm going to think of a nice biblical number. Seven is good, and it's more than twice as high as three. So let's see if that impresses Jesus. Jesus is not impressed. He says, I tell you, not seven, but 77, or in some of your translations, what does it say there? 70 times 7. Now, if you are one of the more quantitatively oriented people here, you will say, well, which is it? Right? Is it, is it 77 or 70 times 7? Because there's a pretty big difference between 77 and 490. As if Jesus is giving you permission to create a spreadsheet and, you know, kind of fill in the rows when somebody sins against you. There's that sin, that sin, that sin. And then when the person gets to either 78 or 491, you say, okay, that's it. I'm done with this guy. He went over the limit. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking that number seven, which in the Bible, whether Peter realizes he did this or not, it often signifies completeness, the number seven. And Jesus is compounding this number. He's making it even more complete in a way. I sometimes think today that if Jesus... We're, we're saying this today in our more mathematically sophisticated world. I think he might say to Peter, I say to you not seven, but seven to the seventh, which I plugged into my calculator just for fun this week, and it is somewhere north of 820,000. And that's a high number, but listen, even that misses the point, because what Jesus is saying here is, stop counting. Stop counting. There is no number that will answer this question. 
And the statement that he, that he gives here probably doesn't set the disciples to trying to figure out math in their head. More likely, what it makes them do is just to drop their jaws as if to say, what? How is that even possible? And so Jesus, probably looking around at them and seeing the stunned looks on their faces, tells them a story. And he tells one of the most ridiculous, unrealistic stories he has ever told. And I think that is by design. There are at least three elements of this parable, this story, that are pretty much ridiculous on their face. First of all, the servant works up a ridiculously high amount of debt. It's all out of proportion. I have seen all sorts of estimates, and you may have some in the notes of your Bible, but I've seen online or in commentaries about what it means that someone would owe 10,000 talents. On the low side are the people that, that in today's money put it somewhere around $10 million. On the other hand, if you assume these talents are weights of gold, as they often are, and as it says in a few of your modern translations, and then you figure out the, the value based on the price of gold in today's market, it runs to the billions of dollars. Okay, so this is a crazy amount. It might even set the disciples to laughing when they hear that, like, really? Because first of all, in order to get into that much debt, this, this servant would have had to be the most irresponsible human being ever. Even if he borrowed everything he was allowed to borrow and sunk all of it into GameStop or, or Bitcoin or whatever, just at the wrong time, he could not possibly have incurred this amount of debt. This number is astronomical, which is to say there is absolutely no hope of ever paying it back. Which means that this begging for more time in verse 26 is also ridiculous because if you figure out what the man's salary probably was, I've seen one calculation that says it would take him 200,000 years to pay it off. Be patient with me. Yeah, right. It's ridiculous. A ridiculous amount of debt. Second, it's ridiculous for the master to forgive this much debt as easily and as readily as he does, right? You probably caught that when, when we were reading through it. At one point, the guy's about to sell the man and his whole family into slavery, but then the man falls to his knees just one time, and he begs and he pleads. And Did you notice he doesn't even beg for forgiveness of the debt? He just begs for an extension. And then, boom! The master has pity on him, and he up and cancels the whole debt right then and there. He doesn't require a longer period of begging and pleading and showing remorse. He doesn't lecture the guy about how stupid and how evil he was to get into this kind of debt in the first place. He doesn't say, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll let you work it off. You know, even though that's mathematically impossible, he doesn't say, well, why don't you come and clean my bathroom with a toothbrush every day for the rest of your life? Which would have been more than generous, and by the way, the guy probably would have taken him up on it. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He just forgives it. He just flat out forgives it. He absorbs a multi-million, more likely multi-billion dollar loss on the spot. This is unheard of. These numbers are mathematically absurd. They point to something else. They point to something infinite. They point to something that is way out there, something unthinkable. This is a forgiveness beyond anything that you could ever imagine. Third, and this is really Jesus' point, it is ridiculous for the servant to be so petty and ungrateful after what just happened. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if you look at the debt that is owed this man by the other servant, a denarius is about a day's wages. So if you assume the guy makes something like minimum wage, we're talking about like a ten dollars or $12,000 loan here, which means this is probably the only realistic number in the whole story. Okay, it, now, no, it's not a trivial amount. 
It's not something trivial. It's, it's payable. It's kind of like a car loan. This, this debt certainly would register on a person's balance sheet as being really there. And yet the other servants, did you notice? The ones who go and inform the master, they know right away this is wrong. They can tell this is unthinkable. How can someone who has just been forgiven a billion dollars turn around and be so vindictive about a few thousand? It doesn't make sense. And all the disciples listening to Jesus here would certainly agree that that kind of pettiness and ingratitude is utterly ridiculous and worthy of being cast into prison because no person with a shred of human decency would ever act like this. But still, even as the disciples are kind of laughing on the outside, there's probably an uneasy feeling in the back of their minds And the uneasy feeling is confirmed when Jesus brings out the punchline in verse 35. So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now that's kind of a harsh verse for a number of reasons. First, it seems to imply that someone who has been forgiven by God can be unforgiven, that the process can somehow be reversed. Second, it it presents a God who is pretty angry, even furious, actually, with the person who fails to forgive. Third, Jesus says, my heavenly Father, not your heavenly Father here. Did you notice that? That's kind of stings. And then lastly, this forgiveness we have to give is is not just some sort of a formal act of some kind. It has to be, Jesus says, from the heart, which is always more difficult to do. So what gives? What does this verse mean? Well, it does not mean, first of all, it does not mean that God reverses the forgiveness process and takes back people's forgiveness or people's salvation, nor does it mean that you somehow earn your salvation by being really good about forgiving other people. That's not what it means. There is abundant testimony all over the New Testament to contradict both those ideas. What it does mean is this. Here's what it means. If you have truly repented of your sin and been forgiven freely by God through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, shed for you on the cross, then you will be a person who forgives. The statement, I am a Christian, and the statement, I refuse to forgive the people who sin against me, those two statements don't make any sense alongside one another. It's ridiculous. Someone who was Utterly unable to forgive an offense is someone who does not know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in the first place. And so in that sense, this, this prison of unforgiveness, is, it's, really, it's a place where forgiveness is neither given nor received. It's a place that doesn't know salvation because it doesn't know the gospel of God's grace. Not really. Listen, when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you were transported to a place where the numbers don't matter anymore. Did you know that? You were delivered from a world of payback and retribution, and you were brought into a world of freedom and release where no one needs to collect their pound of flesh anymore. The other shoe never drops, and God will never, ever, ever bring up the guilt of your sin. Now, it doesn't make sense to live in that world when it comes to your own sin and then go back to the world of payback and restitution and revenge when it comes to the sin of somebody else. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't make sense. We either live in one world or in the other world. Pick one. And Jesus is using this parable to let us know how patently ridiculous and nonsensical it is to even try. It is ridiculous that a Christian would be unforgiving. 
And that is why God displays so much anger towards someone who claims to be forgiven by him and yet shows no mercy to other people. But, let's cut to the chase here, right? Because just, just because it makes no sense for us not to forgive does not necessarily make forgiving people any easier, right? It's still hard to do. Sometimes it's very difficult to do. And it gets real difficult when we look at those last few words, from your heart. How do we even begin to do that when someone has hurt us in some profound or irreversible way? Now, before we look at that, let me just give you a couple things that might help before we move forward. First of all, keep in mind that forgiveness and trust are two different things. Forgiveness can be granted in a moment But trust takes time to develop and and usually needs to be earned, especially if it's been badly broken. If I'm counseling with a family and their their teenage son has lied to them repeatedly about where he's been or what he's been up to and he keeps getting in trouble, he may apologize to his parents for lying and he may receive their forgiveness, but I still give them the right to check up on his whereabouts and to take away whatever they need to, even though it might hurt him when he realizes that they don't quite trust him, not just yet. If I'm dealing with marital unfaithfulness and one partner is trying to do the hard work of processing forgiveness for the offending spouse, I still give that person permission to ask, why did you get home late last night? Who was that text from right just then? And questions like that, just to be sure. And as painful as that might be by the person who, for the person who has repented and is trying to win back the trust, it has to happen. And it doesn't cancel out the forgiveness. It doesn't cancel out the forgiveness. It is possible to forgive someone, yes, even from your heart, and yet they still need to reestablish trust over a period of time. Secondly, it is possible to forgive someone even if they don't apologize. Did you know that? Or even if their apology is, like, really crummy. Forgiveness takes place between you and God. That's where it takes place. You can forgive someone to God even if they don't know they've offended you, and even if they won't admit it. In fact, you can forgive someone that you will never see again, alive or dead. Thirdly, it is possible to forgive someone before you feel like doing it. It is possible to forgive someone when you don't feel like it. When you forgive, here's what you are doing. You are deciding that you will willingly live with the consequences of another person's sin. That's what forgiveness is. You are willingly, you are deciding to willingly live with the consequences of someone else's sin. You are, in effect, absorbing the offense. And when you do that, you are committing to some things. You are committing that you will not seek revenge. You are committing that you will not keep bringing it up. You will not vent to other people all the time about the offense. And other than those trust issues we talked about, you will make every effort to treat this person as if they had never sinned against you in the first place. That's forgiveness. Those are all actions. And that can be painful, and it is painful, because you may still be hurting pretty deeply, and every time you interact with that person, it's like a gut punch, because you remember the offense all over again. But still, you have to remember that you have not only buried the hatchet, you forgot where you buried it. And so you can't go pick it up again. The guilt is atoned for. The person has been released from any obligation to you that might be thought of as making up for the hurt. But 
you might ask, well, if I don't really feel like doing it, but I kind of do that stuff anyway, is that really from the heart? Well, to some extent, yes, in that the heart in the Bible is, among other things, the center of your decision-making, and you just made a very costly decision, okay? But of course, there is more also. There's more to the heart than just your will. The heart is also the seat of your emotions, your feelings, and that may be a different matter. And one of the big traps that we fall into, especially if we're basically nice people, and I, I know most of you, and you're very nice people. Most of you. <laughs> no, if you're nice and you get along with people, you know, that you, you know, we do those things that indicate forgiveness, and we put on a pretty good show on the outside, right? But we never really process the debt and the hurt internally, and so we become filled eventually with pain and resentment and bitterness, and those things can't stay hidden forever, and so as a result, we either end up becoming short-tempered and irritable with people, or we just shut down emotionally. And by the way, this is also a prison, and this is the one that some of you are currently living in today. And it's where the rest of you have to be careful not to go. And, and you know, many of us have spent time in this prison. We know exactly how it feels to be there. You nurse that anger that resentment, it just keeps building. And you, you think about how you might get the person back. You don't do it, but you think about what it would be like to get the person back and how you could tell them off with the perfectly devastating zinger, you know, those words. Things that you will never say. Why? Because you're too nice. And because you're too ashamed to fail so badly out in the open, you know. But you, but you fantasize about saying those things anyway. And you know what makes you feel better for a while? In your mind? But in the long run, all you do is feel worse and more angry, and the resentment grows, and there's poison in your soul. Someone once said this, harboring resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Let me read you an extended quote from the book, Soul Care, by Rob Reimer. Is it Reimer West? Did I pronounce his name right, or is it Reimer? Reimer. R-E-I. He must not be German. But anyway, it's, it's, it's Reimer. But I can't put it as well as he does. He says this, when you hold someone in your debt, the enemy gets a stronghold in your life. This gives him access to your soul, and he torments you. He tortures you. Sometimes the bitterness that is there leads to depression. Sometimes the soul pain that is underneath the bitter root leads you to turn to some comfort sin pattern. You attempt to numb the pain with drinking or eating or prescription drugs, or TV, or pornography. Then the enemy torments you by shaming you for your choices. It's a vicious cycle. You have been given over to the torturer, and he is working you over. Anybody there right now? The only way out of this, the only way out of this is to forgive. It's the only key that unlocks that gate. Corey Ten Boom, whom most of you have heard of, who had to forgive to his face the Nazi soldier who had mistreated her at the Ravensbrück concentration camp, once said this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then find out that the prisoner was you. So how does this forgiveness reach your heart? How does it, how does it get all the way inside there and how does it let your heart out of prison? Let, let me give you one 
Let me give you one really big, essential, important step that you have to take, and then let me give you two other steps that you probably should take, especially the second one, but, but they're kind of accessory to the first one. But the first one's really important. Here's the really big step that you have to take, and you will not get anywhere. This forgiveness will not get anywhere near your heart unless you do this. You must consider the depth of God's forgiveness of you. You must consider how much God has forgiven you. Why do you think God reacts so intensely against those who are merciless and unforgiving? It's because of the sacrifice that he made for them, which they are ignoring. And it was an infinite, immense sacrifice. Now the positive side of that is, if God gets so mad when it's neglected, think about how powerful it must be. Think about how effective it must be as a sacrifice. Listen, when Jesus, in verse 35, when he says, my heavenly Father so will my heavenly Father do. And he doesn't say your heavenly Father, as he usually does with the disciples, even in Lord's, after the Lord's Prayer, he says your heavenly Father. But here he does, and he says my heavenly Father. I don't think he's trying to tell the disciples that God isn't their Father anymore. I believe what he's doing here is he is highlighting his own personal relationship with God the Father, which is the deepest love that has ever existed, the relationship between the Father and the Son. The same relationship holds the universe together. And that relationship, Jesus knows, is going to be broken on the cross while Jesus hangs crying in the dark with no answer from his Father in heaven. If you're a parent, think about this. Imagine your son or daughter being abused. Can you picture yourself, even for a moment, ignoring your child's desperate cries for help, especially when he's crying, Daddy, where are you? Mommy, how come you haven't come? Remember the master's ridiculous forgiveness? How he was able to cancel that debt so readily? Such a huge debt. Why would he be able to do that? The only thing that would make any sense here, the only thing that would make that action less ridiculous is if the debt, the multi-billion dollar debt, has already been taken care of. But now we know what it costs. Now we know what the master had to go through in order to see that happen. He had to turn his back on his own son while he poured out onto him all of the wrath that our sins have accumulated. Have you ever considered that the offense that he forgave you is likely greater and deeper than anything you have ever imagined? You know your own soul better than I do, but he knows it even better than you and yet he still gave his son for you. Step one is always the same. Step one is always this. Go to the cross and meditate on what happened there between you and Jesus. You can never pay him back, so don't try, but you can be utterly amazed at his love and his forgiveness. You can worship him. You can sing to him, fall down before him, and thank him. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, my God, would die for me. Now, that may be enough right there to start to bring that forgiveness from just being a cold decision to being a real heartfelt release. But there are two other things that you can do that will help if you still sense a block in your spirit here. Step two is to make sure, to the extent possible, that the person who hurt you knows what they did. 
including the depth of the pain that it has caused you. Okay? In the companion passage over in Luke, Jesus says this. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Well, why rebuke him? Why is that there? Well, because in order to repent, he needs to know what he's done. And sometimes when we hurt somebody, we do what someone was once called offering up a one-cup apology for a five-gallon offense. And you know what? We're really nice people. And some people are so quick to apologize, and other people are so quick to say, oh, that's okay, that they both short-circuit the process of forgiveness by not acknowledging the real hurt inside. And so what happens is the resentment builds up and builds up and builds up, and that's because the real pain was never taken to the cross. Just some superficial version of it was. Listen, this is a warning I need to tell you about this. We are not in the business of judging one another's apologies as to their level of passion or genuineness, okay? But what we can do is to make sure that people are apologizing for the right thing. Okay, not just, not just the thoughtless action this person took that didn't realize it, but for the way that it told you how unvalued and insignificant you were in their eyes. Not just for the brief moment of discomfort or inconvenience they may have caused you, but for the, the legacy of hurt and healing that it necessitated. If it's a five-gallon offense, give the person the opportunity to give you a five-gallon apology so this thing can really be forgiven. And then step three, you're going to love this one. Pray for the person who hurt you. Okay, this one can be hard. This one makes you grind your teeth when you start trying to do it. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, pray for those who persecute you. And he said other things like that in other parts of the Gospels. In that book I quoted earlier, Soul Care, um, the author talks about a time when he was an assistant pastor. He'd just taken a new, a new job as an assistant pastor somewhere up in New England. And he found out shortly after getting to the church that one of the members was telling everybody in the church that he was having an extramarital affair and that he had stolen money from the church bank account, neither of which was happening. And on top of that, this guy who was lying about him all the time was coming up to him at the end of the service every single week at the door and saying, it's great to see you this morning, Pastor. And for some reason, the church leadership knew about this, but they wouldn't confront the man, even though this wasn't the first time he had slandered a, a pastor like this. So you can imagine the, the, the tension that is going on here. Well, he tried to forgive the man. And in working through the process of trying to forgive this man, Pastor Reamer sensed that the Lord repeatedly was directing him to these passages in the Gospels where Jesus tells you to pray for and do kind things for the person who is persecuting you or hurting you. And he kept rebelling and saying, forget it, I'm not doing that. But as God kept reminding him of these scriptures, he said, you know what, I better just obey God or God's not going to let me off the hook here, so fine, I'll try it. I'm going to pray for this guy. And so he prayed, Lord, I pray for this man. I pray that his wife won't hate him as much as she probably should. I pray that his kids won't turn out to be like him. You've prayed stuff like that before. But as he prayed more and more, he found his heart softening. And he said the prayer started changing to be more gracious and kind. And then one Sunday, as he met this man at the door and greeted him with a smile and a blessing, to his surprise, he found out that he actually meant it. God had transformed his heart to be able to forgive this man whether the offense was ever going to be dealt with or not. Now, 
how does this work? Well, when I think about how it works, and I'm going to close with this thought, but, but part of it to me has something to do with what Jesus said when he was being mistreated. The words that came out of his mouth as he was forgiving those who were mistreating him, in fact, they were in the process of killing him. Do you remember what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, comma, it's the rest of it. They don't know what they're doing. They know not what they do. Have you ever thought about saying something like that when you're trying to forgive someone who has hurt you? You say, no, because I'm not going to excuse the sin. You're not excusing the sin. I don't think Jesus was excusing the sin here. These people were committing a horrible sin. They were crucifying the Son of God. This sin still was an offense. It was a big one. It needed to be forgiven. But the Bible tells us repeatedly that God knows about our weaknesses. And he takes them into account. Psalm 103 reminds us that God knows that we are like grass. He knows how weak we are. And yet he has compassion on us and he forgives our sin. Jesus, it says, viewed the lost crowds around him not as a bunch of vicious sinners, but as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Were they sinners? Yes. But they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He doesn't excuse your sin, but he understands where it's coming from. And he knows the pain that you've been through. He knows He knows the the depth of the temptations that you go through. He knows the struggles that you are dealing with and the things in your background that that, that contributed to this happening. He knows that. And it's possible as we struggle to forgive someone who is hurting us without excusing the sin and without denying the offense that that we just at least identify with the person as a fellow struggling human being who may be dealing with pain, loss, weakness, family issues, or something in his background that that we don't know about, and just maybe if we were in the same position, we wouldn't be much different. And so as we continue to sin against each other and hurt each other, as we are guaranteed to do for a while, and as we deal with debts that are both big and small, wounds that are big and small, The bottom line truth is this. We're all broken. We're all in serious need of help from God. And we are all infinite debtors to His grace. And I believe that realization will help us to give that grace to those who hurt us and who don't deserve it. Because, then again, we didn't deserve God's forgiveness either.